Good morning, church. As we get going this morning, I just want to read a passage out of Genesis 42. This is a place in the scriptures that a lot of times we don't really get to. In Genesis, we have this like creation account, and we have this story of Joseph, and then there's just like a bunch of stuff in between. And chapter 42 of the book of Genesis, beginning in verse 50, we find these words, before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by a Senath, daughter of Potipera, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, it is because God has made me forget all of my trouble and all of my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim. And he said, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. And so Joseph is a, is a person, is a man who has encountered great turmoil, great trouble, great distress. And he has two sons. And one he names Manasseh. And Manasseh is this Hebrew word for forget. Because God has been so good and so gracious and so powerful and so loving and so near and so close, so indwelled Joseph's life that he's able to look back on his father and his household and all of the turmoil that happened there. And he's able to, to sing the song that we just sang. Like that, that even when it's hard and difficult and dark and lonely, that's not going to stop my praise. But that's not the only son that he has. He's got another son named Ephraim. And Ephraim in the, the Hebrew is this word that means fruitful, but not like fruitful once. It's more like fruitful again. It's like double fruitful in the land of my suffering. And I just think that's a really important word to say today, that really before we say anything else, uh, this will be a week that will be talked about for a long time. It's being talked a lot about now. It's what has unfolded this week is deeply tragic and deeply troubling. You don't need me to stand up here this morning and to tell you all of that. But I think what we do need today is Genesis 42, that it is possible for God to make us fruitful in the land of our suffering. It's possible. Because he did it once, and I believe that he wants to, to do it again. And so as we think about what our posture is in these days, what our decisions are going to be in these days, I don't want what's going on around us to tell the whole story to the point where we lose our role on the earth as ambassadors of the king of the universe. Like, let's not forget that we're Hosanna people. Let's not let all of these other things that are going on rob us of that, rob us of the chance of being fruitful in the land of our suffering. And yes, what happened at the Capitol is sickening, and it's horrible, and it's dark, and it's evil. And I think Scripture would back that up. There's a, there's a God of order. There's a God of justice. 
So God creates the world day by day, moment by moment. He's a God of peace and shalom and order. And what we saw unfold is the opposite of all of that. But let's not forget that God is not done. There's still work that he desires to do. And the beautiful thing about all of that is that God desires and is committed to using us. So let's make sure that we have an attitude of Joseph, that we can name a child Ephraim. Because even in the land of my suffering, it's possible for fruit to grow. Sermon over, will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you today for the blessing of this house and of this place. And during a week that was horrible and sad and destructive, uh, a week that had the very smell of death on it. We are Easter people, and hallelujah is our song, as Pope John Paul II would say. And so, God, I pray that that would be true of us in this place today. That because we're Easter people and because hallelujah is our song doesn't mean that we're free from pain and suffering and darkness and sin and death and hell. But it does mean that we have a rock that is higher than I. And it does mean that we have a a name to claim. And it's a name that will root us. It's a name that is going to give us courage to speak the truth. It's going to give us the courage even when we're afraid to, to stand up and say that this is wrong and this should not have happened. It's going to give us a chance for all of us to be prophets because what we've been called to, to testify to the, to the God of the universe. So it's not about making sure that we've prayed some prayer in our life at some point, and so that's going to provide this ticket for us to find our feet planted in this heavenly city. What it does is it gives us a, a belief firm in our bones this morning. That we have a God who is working out for his glory and his fame and his honor that which the enemy has sought to steal and kill and destroy. And so God, we we would, desire of our heart is that we would be Ephraim people that we would be fruitful people even in the land of suffering. So we're not turning our eye away from it. We're not turning our back on it. We're looking at it in the face. And we're proclaiming Hosanna to the son of David, save us. But we also are proclaiming the truth this morning that the way that salvation has come is through the life and the death and the resurrection of this little baby who at the end of his life entrusts his teachings, his miracles, his words to a group of people. And in a moment says, go and do likewise. And then he's reunited with his father in heaven. So God, will you help us? Would you give us courage and strength and power in Jesus' name and for Jesus' name? Amen. What did you see? I'm going to keep singing this morning.
My job is to help new homeowners who have turned into their parents. I'm having a big lunch and then just a snack for so dinner. So we're just... using a speakerphone in this store. Is that a good idea? One of the ways I do that is to get them out of the home. You're looking for a grout brush. This Garth, is the... did he ask for your help? No. 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 We all see it. We all see it. He has blue hair. Okay. Blue. Progressive can't protect you from becoming your parents, but we can protect your home and auto when you bundle with us. Keep it coming. You don't know him. Do we really need a sign to live, laugh, and love? Yes. The answer is no. I can help new homeowners not become their parents. Keanu. Nope. Koei Noah. No. Joaquin. No. It just takes practice. Give it a shot. Do you hear that? Yeah. It's a constant battle. We're going to open a PDF. Who's next? Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home an auto with us. No fussing, no cussing, and no laughing. So I think that is probably my favorite commercial uh, right now. And there's, there's just really a truth in that. You know, that, that the people in authority, the people that we spend a lot of our time with and around, like they have power to shape us. I should have practiced pulling the Play-Doh out of the thing before I brought it up here. But like we've all been shaped so much by the homes that we grew up in. Right, and we're in this series talking about some kings of the Old Testament. We're talking about King Saul and King David and, and King Solomon. And, you know, if you're kind of asking, well, like, this feels like history class in the Bible. Like, like why are we doing that? Like, well, why are all of these kings and all these narratives of what they did, their rise and their fall, like, why is that important to to know, like, shouldn't we just talk about Jesus? And the reason it's important is because of the shaping power of the soul that people in authority have. And so these are our lessons for us because the, the Israel people find themselves, the Israelites find themselves like on the wrong end of the equation, we can say when they are being shaped more by the person who has earthly authority than when they are being shaped by the one who has ultimate heavenly authority. So that's just a question for us. Like, hey, who's shaping us most? Like, is it a person who has some earthly authority? Like, whether that's somebody in your family, whether that's someone in your workplace like maybe that's someone whose number is in your phone or maybe it's someone totally different like is the voice of God more familiar is it louder in your life than that person and so we're talking about this guy first this King Saul kind of guy and so I want to show you all of the land that he was in charge of and yes, I'm having lots of fun with my laser pointer. Thank you for noticing. You notice every week there's something I get to do with it. It's just kind of sort of just let me do it. Okay, so down here in the south, right, we have all of these other people groups who are surrounding Israel. And everything inside of this red is the kingdom that Saul was in charge of. And a lot of times in the scriptures, when we're talking about Israel, we're talking about a divided kingdom. 
We're talking about like the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah that was going to get split like right here-ish. It's hard to do it straight. Right by the Jabbok River. Like that's going to happen, but that hasn't happened yet. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, they're, they're united in these days. So they're united under Saul against all of these people over here. So we saw in 1 Samuel 8, Last week, the Israelites demand a king like all of the other nations have. Like, give me the shoes that everyone at school has. Like, I want to look like everyone else. First Samuel chapter 8, and then First Samuel chapter 9, we meet Saul. And First Samuel 9 says that he's an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. So there's this like external evidence that he's a person of authority and of power, and he's someone that you should listen to. But then for Samuel 10, I'm still getting used to this, I skipped ahead. Sorry, sorry. Matt, can you help me? Can you go back to, thank you. Samuel anoints Saul as king. So Samuel's this prophet of God, and they have this big ceremony like we're going to have soon, where they anoint Saul as king. They place him in authority over all people in Israel. And then for Samuel 11, Saul rescues the city of Jabesh from the Ammonites. This is a crazy story. So the Ammonites are this group of people who are kind of hanging out in the, the southern region of Israel, and Saul defeats them, right? And so what happens is the, the leader of the Ammonites, they're going to like have this peace treaty with Israel. Like, okay, we're not going to fight against you if everyone in your land, so if all the Israelites, all you have to do, you just have to gouge out one of your eyes. Then we won't fight against you. Deal? Like, nobody's taking that deal, right? So here comes Saul, and he attacks them, and there's this big victory that is had. And so at the beginning, like, it looks like Saul is going to be a great king because he rescues Israel out of the hand of the Ammonites, and all the Israelites still have two eyes. Praise the Lord. Thanks be to God. So it just turns out, starts out good, but it just doesn't stay that way. 1 Samuel 12, we have Samuel who gives this like farewell speech. So again and again and again in 1 Samuel, you hear of his age, like he's old and he's old and he's going out of style. And so he has this farewell speech. And then 1 Samuel 13, we have the fall of King Saul. So the fall begins. So 1 Samuel 13, we're going to start reading today. Oh, now I'm going backwards. Dave, come on. Get it together. All right. So verse 5 of 1 Samuel 13. Find these words. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Bith Haven. Then the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical 
and that their army was hard-pressed, so they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. And then verse 7, some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops were with him, quaking with fear. So again, here's our map, right? So here's like the Ammonites here. They've, we've already had a deal with them. Now we're having a deal with the Philistines. And so the Philistines are, are seeking to invade Israel, to take over, to take land, to, to take authority in the region. And Israel's got an army. There's 3,000 of them, which might sound like a lot, but I'm guessing some of us have been, not recently, but in the past, have been somewhere with 3,000 people. Like, it's a little bit of a crowd, but it's nothing compared to what the Philistines bring. The Philistine army, Scripture says, were as numerous as the sand of the sea. So, like, you can't even count them. They're too numerous to even attach a number to. And then Israel, what is Israel doing? And we're not talking about just the people of Israel. We're talking about soldiers. The soldiers are doing something. The soldiers are hiding. And where are they hiding? We have this list. In caves, in thickets, and behind rocks, and in pits, and in cisterns. Like anywhere they can hide, they are trying to get away from this ridiculously strong and mighty army of the Philistines. And we just need to know, I think, this morning that like faithfulness, perseverance is difficult enough. Faithfulness is even more challenging when we're afraid. Like, it's, it's, difficult. it's easy enough, right? I mean, it is not an easy deal. But then when, when we're afraid, it's made even more difficult. And we also need to talk about how fear is a, is a thief. It's going to prevent us from accomplishing, like, our most important task in our most important role. And so the question we find, Saul, he's in Gilgal. So like, why in the world is he there? Shouldn't he be protecting his people from the Philistines? He's in Gilgal because he was told to be there. And he's doing like one of the most difficult things that we can do as human beings. Saul's waiting. So if we go back a few pages to 1 Samuel chapter 10, we find these words Samuel saying to King Saul, go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. So Samuel is two things. He's both priest and he's prophet. So he's priest in saying like, hey, I'm going to come. Uh, we're going to have a worship service. We're going to sacrifice burnt offerings like unto God, asking, pleading, placing our trust into the God who is able to save and rescue us out of this situation. So we're going to come and do that. 
but then I'm also going to be prophet. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you what you are to do. So let's find out what King Saul chooses to do. Verse 8. King Saul waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Verse 10, just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to greet him. So as Saul is waiting for Samuel, the the army begins to evaporate. So there's 3,000 soldiers, there's 3,000 men, and then all of a sudden there's like 2,500 because they're afraid. And they're not just like kind of scared. Like they're terrified. Like they're afraid that they are going to lose their life. And there's 2,500, then there's 2,000, and then there's 1,700, then there's 1,400, then there's 900. And it gets all the way down to 600 men. They had 3,000, which was a low number compared to the Philistine army, but now they have even 80% less than that. Got 600 men to fight this people. So 1 Samuel 13 Verse 11, after Saul takes charge of the moment himself to sacrifice these burnt offerings, even though that's not his job to do, Samuel arrives at Gilgal. Verse 11, what have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, Verse 12, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Like, I just wonder, like, you ever done something foolish, like when you've been tired? You ever, like, responded to somebody in a way that you didn't want to respond to them? Because you were tired? Like you'd just woken up, maybe? Just imagine in the house. If that's ever happened to you. What about, like, have you ever done something foolish when you've been afraid? Like, you haven't stood up. You haven't told the truth. Like, has anybody in the house today ever lied? Because you were afraid. Because you were afraid of telling the truth. Like, you understand, if you can say yes to any of those questions, you understand the place that King Saul is in. Like, he's terrified. And, and fear can steal our sleep. Anybody, like, not been able to sleep after something that happened during the day that made you afraid? And maybe it wasn't, like, a scary movie. Maybe it was some kind of event. It's like, man, how are we supposed to sleep after that? Like fear can steal your sleep, it can steal your peace, but fear can also steal your judgment. And that's exactly what happens to King Saul. 
fear steals his judgment. So then 1 Samuel 13, 13 to 15, Samuel gets a chance to respond, or Saul's a response to Samuel. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then verse 15. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gebeah in Benjamin, and Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. So Saul, in his fear, he disobeys, takes matters into his own hands. He does what Samuel was supposed to do. Like, he's the king. He's not the priest. He's not the prophet. He's the king. Like, he's supposed to stay in his lane. And he steps out of his lane. And he takes things that did not belong to him. And Samuel says to him, Saul, like, somebody's going to replace you. Because God is looking for a leader whose heart beats with his. And so you are going to be replaced. Saul, like, you're going to lose your crown over this. And as I looked at this text this week, like, I just had this big question on my whiteboard. Like, does that seem fair to you? Like, Saul's going to lose his crown because he got afraid. Because that fear stole wisdom and judgment from him. And one of the things that I think we're faced with today is like really how important is obedience to us? And the scripture is telling us loudly this morning like it is very important to God. But it's not always like that big of a deal to us. Because we kind of think, well, like, it's sort of what we tell our kids. Like, try better next time. Try again. But it's a big deal to God. And so I want to fast forward a thousand years to the upper room. And Jesus is, he's seated with his disciples one last time. They have had this meal tons of times. But they're having it for a last time. And he's talking to them about his kingdom. He's talking to them about what really matters and what's really true and what's really worth chasing. And he has some things to say about the relationship between obedience and love. So John chapter 14, in verse 15, he'll say, If you love me, you'll obey what I command. And then he says in verse 21, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. So if you ever have to like repeat yourself because you think what you said is really good and people should remember it, that's what Jesus does. If you love me, you'll obey what I command. 
And then again, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. It's kind of a complicated, awkward sentence. But he repeats himself again. And then there's more. Verse 23, he's not done yet. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. Ever been in a conversation, you're like, yeah, I get it. Said it twice. Now I've said it three times. Like, I'm, mm hmm, I will set the table. Yes, I'm on my way. And then again, verse 24a, he who does not love me will not obey my teaching. So this is something that Jesus knows to be true. Like, if love is not part of the picture, if love is not present, there's not a chance that obedience is. Like for obedience, have, for, the, for obedience being present, there has to be love. There has to be the presence of love. And so just a question for us this morning, like when do you experience the love of God? Like we could all answer that very differently. Some of us encounter God in outside of buildings in a way that's meaningful and peaceful like we have some people in the house who are lake people and you experience God out on the water because as you can see water as far as you can see and you just know man like there's a there's a God who created all of this we a lot of times we talk about being saved by grace man, but we're also created by grace God creates out of a, of a gracious love and powerful hand. There's all different kinds of ways that we experience God. Some of us would say like, man, like even by like, like science and by studying how the world came to be, it's like, man, that's amazing that God did that. For some of us, we sit down with some artwork and we're like, man, like, God created beauty. Like, beauty was his idea. Like, all different kinds of ways that we would experience God. But that last conversation, that last supper that Jesus has with his disciples, there's a question that screams out at us. Like, when does he experience your love? Not when do you experience the love of God, but when does God experience your love? Over and over, Jesus will say, if you love me, I need you to do what I've asked you to do. And the implication is, if you're not going to do that, I'm not sure that you love me. And so even in that, even if there's a person where that is true, there's an opportunity that Jesus opens the door to love God. And if we go back to Saul, he is deeply in love with his reputation. He's deeply in love with what other people think of him. He is not going to let those Ammonites make a treaty with his people that causes his people to lose their eyes, which is kind of him. That would not be a fun experience. He's in love with his reputation. He's in love with looking successful. He's in love with what a king should look like. He's in love with what a king should do. 
And the, the Hebrew people had this prayer that they would pray on a daily basis, not just like when they went to church, but like when they got up in the morning, as they went about their day and as they lay down at night, it's this prayer found in Deuteronomy 6.4. It's called the Shema. And the prayer just goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. And maybe the thing that is most true of Saul is that his heart is far from God. And I just believe this morning that something is moved in the heart of God when his kids say yes to him. Like when they're willing to follow, even when they're scared. Even when they're worried, even when other people aren't doing it, something is moved in the heart of God when his kids say yes. You say, well, how do you know that? Because in the Old Testament, there are some sacrifices God wants nothing to do with. Ever noticed that before? There's some Old Testament prophet moments where the people of God, they build this altar and they're giving this offering to God and God's like, that's gross. I don't want anything to do with that offering. Why? Because you commanded your people to like offer up to you. Because their hearts are far from me, God will say. It's like, I don't want you to talk to me about what you have placed on your altar if you have not given your heart. And so the question kind of we're left at the end is like, Saul loses his crown because he does this? Like he says, Saul, like you're going to be replaced. You're losing your crown over this. Because God needs a, needs a king who has a heart who beats like his, beats after his. Who understands he's been made and built and he exists in this divine image. Like, he's going to lose his crown. Shout out to Target. It sort of fits. Don't make them for adults or for kids. But Saul doesn't lose his crown because he did this. Saul loses his crown because he does this. Saul has a pattern of making decisions in this way. It's a pattern that he will repeat again and again and again and again. And God's not going to allow him to continue to lead his people. So Saul is losing his crown. And here's my hunch this morning. If Samuel would have warned Saul, or if there would have been some of one of Saul's men who said, like, hey, no, 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 don't do the sacrifice. Don't do the sacrifice. Because Samuel is coming. He's two miles away. Don't do the sacrifice. Or he's 
coming in two hours. Just wait two hours. Don't do the sacrifice. Or if someone would have said, hey, Saul, like, don't do the sacrifice because if you do, like, you're going to lose your crown. Like, you're no longer going to be king. You're going to lose your crown over this. My hunch, my guess is that Saul would have not gone through with it if Saul would have known what was going to happen. And so here's the thing. We don't always know. We don't always know what the consequences are. We do know who we have been commanded to obey and what we have been asked to do. That's what we know. In the the Old Testament, the, the story of the Bible, this story of King Saul teaches us that crowns that are given can also be removed. Because the one who gave it can take it away. And Saul doesn't lose his crown because he made a mistake. Because he did something once. Saul loses his crown because his heart is far from God and it's a pattern he'll repeat again and again and again and again. And I'll tell you the question that I was left with in my own heart. I'm going to invite the band up as we close this morning. As I prepared this message for today and as I studied, is I just could not help but think about, like, is there a crown that the Lord would desire to give to me? Like a place of authority in the world, as a follower of Jesus, as a servant of the Almighty King, and that I would use that crown to be helpful to other people in the world as a messenger, as an ambassador of Jesus. Like, is that true? And like, what people would I hurt if I lost it? And is there a crown that the Lord would desire to give to this church, this community of believers? So that we would be of help to other people in the world. And could we lose it? Because we were more in love with our reputation. And I don't know what a church should look like, anybody. That we lost sight of having a heart that belonged to him. The hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Because just because you've been given something does not mean that it will never be removed. And so this story in the scriptures with King Saul, it's a powerful one. It's a sobering one. But I think that there's grace in this too. And there's grace because there's a man who is seated at that table at that last supper. And he goes and sells Jesus out, right? And there's another man seated at that table. And when he has an opportunity to do what God has asked him to do, he doesn't do it. When he's seated around a fire and there's someone who says to him, hey, like, were you, 
like one of Jesus' friends? Like, I think I, I think I recognize you from like being with him. Like that crazy day when he, he healed that dude with the shriveled hand. I think you were there. Weren't you there? And Peter says, no. I don't, know, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know that guy. And he denies him not once, not twice, but three times. But then John 21 happens. In John 21, Jesus is seated around a fire. He's making breakfast. And Peter is welcomed back in to sit with Jesus among him and the disciples and enjoy this meal. And he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes. That's Peter's favorite answer. It's his favorite word in the language. Yes. I love you. Be my sheep. Translations, do what I've asked you to do. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs. Take care of the people that I've given you to take care of. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Do what I have asked you to do. And I pray that invitation would be a place filled with people who have a deep desire to do that and to do that well. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you today for this group of people and for a place to gather and a place to belong in a week that has had a lot of difficulty and there's a lot of pain that's present and a lot of hardship and a lot of uncertainty. And so God, I just want to say thank you, Jesus, for your grace, for your forgiveness, for your resurrection power that redeems and renews and restores when we do not do what you have asked of us when we reject your teaching when we reject your words spoken over us when we reject your way we thank you for the grace that you offer to us And we pray that that grace would not find an empty place within us, but that your grace would find our heart in such a way that would change the daily decisions that we make because, God, it is easy for us to allow fear to steal our judgment and our wisdom. So, God, will you strengthen us today? Would you help us today? Would you build us up today? So that even when we find ourselves in a situation that looks bleak, now it looks like we don't have enough, like there's only 600 of us versus an innumerable amount of them, that we would do what you've asked us to do because we know you and we trust you and we love you and we're more concerned with honoring you than preserving some kind of ambition that we have or some kind of image that we have in the world or what other people would think about us. 
So God, I'm praying courage over this church. I'm, I'm praying bravery over this church. I'm praying obedience over this church. I'm praying power over this church. But help us do what you've asked us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing one more song together.